There was a young pastor facing a crisis in his church planting ministry. Over the first several years, the Lord had blessed and brought a number of people to help in the work of the ministry. More recently, though, things had taken a different turn. In fact, the pastor felt like he was on a downward spiral with no end in view. Some of his most mature believers had approached him about a doctrinal interpretation that uh, apparently was important to them. He, he listened and had to tell them that, uh, yeah, he, he actually disagreed with their conclusion on that point, but that God's people uh, held various views on that issue and found that they can still work together. Unfortunately, those families didn't see it that way, and they decided to leave the church. Well, that discouraged a few others that were there, but kind of more on the periphery, and they left as well. Looking around, I realized he, he only had a, a few left. It was like starting all over again years later, only he wasn't sure he could. You see, our faith falters, much as we just heard in that song from the ensemble. Our faith falters when God's plan seems to have taken a turn in the wrong direction. You've been there too, I know. And of course, our theology would tell us that God's plan can't take a wrong direction. And yet, very often, our theology lags behind our, our understanding, our, our perception in our minds. That lags behind our heart, which looks at the circumstance and blurts out, Oh, no, Lord, not that. And once again, our faith is being challenged, and it looks like we've hit a dead end. Sometimes we wonder, what in the world could the Lord be thinking? John chapter 11. The Lord uses the occasion of the death of Lazarus to teach an important lesson. The lesson is not that if you believe the Lord, he'll raise from the dead uh, a loved one that has passed away and they, they can resume life on this earth as normal. That's not the promise of this passage. In fact, that was not a promise he ever explicitly gave to Mary and Martha, the two sisters. You could have read his words that way, but they didn't because it wasn't clear that that was what his plan was going to be. The promise instead is actually a, a little uh, more widespread. I mean, it has wider application than just the death of a loved one or a good friend. 
the application here extends to every circumstance that it looks like it's too late for the Lord to do anything. It's beyond his ability at this point. We'll have to go on to plan B. Well, God's plan never has a plan B because plan A never fails. The lesson then is not just designed here for the two sisters or even for the disciples that he had prepped ahead of time that there was something special going to go on here that they needed to pay attention to. But this is for us as well. The demonstration at the tomb of Lazarus is that Christ has power over death. But taking death here as what we would regard as the ultimate dead end, the end of the road, what else can be done now? I don't see anything that could be done. Taking that as the ultimate and realizing that he has power over that as well, clearly implying he's got power over every lesser challenge that we face as well. So how should we be responding to that kind of God with that extent of power? Should be responding, this passage will urge us, to believe that he controls every circumstance that you face. The ones you are facing right now, the ones that are barreling down the path coming toward you for this new week. Believe that he controls every circumstance, every situation. The demonstration of his power over death extends to power over every challenge that you face. Now, he does need to demonstrate that power to convince us and to convince his people of that. So in verses 38 to 40 in John 11, open there, follow along in chapter 11. Uh, We are picking up where we left off a couple of months ago, where Christ shows that he can invade the realm of death, and he's not afraid to do that. He marches on this occasion. He's been on the move in the previous passage. He arrives at his destination. But before he tells us about that destination, John has to tell us something else going on in the heart of Christ. Uh, A key element of the passage previous that tells us Christ is not just aloof and handling the challenges that, uh, that his people face, that he is emotionally involved with this, that he is passionate about communicating uh, an important lesson, a lesson that could help his people at that moment and can help you at the crucial moments of crisis that you face in your life. Christ can confront the enemy, whatever that enemy is. Here, the representation of our greatest enemy. 
And in that confrontation, he is enraged at sin. When it says in verse 38 that he was deeply moved again, that's the same terminology we saw last time that tells us that he was indignant. He is outraged at the devastating impact that sin continues to have upon people that he loves. All the people that he loves. He's enraged at that sin. He's driven by the devastating effects, in this case, that death inflicts on those people. The sorrow that he has been witnessing. And he's just bristling with this indignation. And so in that condition, he arrives at the tomb. And John points out that in this case, the tomb was a cave and a stone lay against it. The picture you should have in your mind here is much the same as what we have for the tomb of Christ, a a tomb cut out of uh, a solid rock, uh, a Uh, going in sideways, sometimes they dug down. It depended on the direction of the cave, but with a stone rolled over that opening, uh, we picture the, the cave extending in horizontally. And verse 38, in that letting us know that he came all the way to the tomb, The tomb is the picture, it's the emblem of the power of death. And he's ready to stare that emblem of the enemy right in the face. He then does something that is shocking to all the bystanders. He orders that they take away the stone. What they had assumed, he was just coming to share in the grief. He was going to come alongside the mourners and mourn along with them, with the two sisters, and together they would all uh, just share their grief. Christ has a different plan. What is a dead end for them is an opportunity for him. Take away the stone. Now, they all immediately have the same inner response, but Martha, as is typical for her, voices what they're thinking. And what she says lets him know that there are some obstacles here to uh, accomplishing God's work that day. The, The first one is the stone itself. Take away the stone. He's ready to remove that obstacle. That's the physical effects of sin. But then Martha responds by saying, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. The the Jewish people did not embalm like the uh, Egyptians did. They would have known how to do that, but it's not a tradition they carried with them out of Egypt centuries before. They would simply spice up the dead body. Uh, They would just cover with some uh, uh, strong-smelling aromas, but 
those aromas were never going to be a match for the decomposition of the body. Four days later, oh no, this, this, is, this is going to be unbearable. What's the assumption there? That the body is going to stay dead. That there's nothing even Christ can do. What he's seeing then is the obstacle of the repulsiveness of sin. That's what the decomposition represents. But he sees something else here, and that is the obstacle of unbelief on the part of his people. That's what Martha is saying. Lord, don't you know there's nothing you can do? Don't you know that if we open that that tomb, there are going to be some serious negative consequences to that? Imagine suggesting that the Lord doesn't know those things. Imagine assuming that he doesn't have a plan. We don't have to imagine that. We do that. We respond to challenging circumstances by, by, if not blurting out verbally, it's in the heart. It's rattling around in the head. Oh, no, what are you doing? We can't go that way. Does it really make sense to suggest to the Lord that he doesn't know what he's doing? That obstacle, Christ is ready to correct as well. And he does so with a call to believe him. Right back down to the basics. Believe, he says. He says this in a form of a question. In verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? We actually don't have a record of him saying those words to Martha quite like that. He had said, your brother will rise again, and she had responded, I know he'll rise again on the last day. True enough. Christ never got more explicit than that. He said, no, no, I mean today. He didn't say that. He had told the disciples earlier in this chapter when he was prepping them for going to the tomb of Lazarus. And he said that the the very death of Lazarus is for the glory of God. Now, let's pause here because that statement is true of every instance of death. You come to the end of someone's life, and it is for the glory of God that that life ends. Just as it was for the glory of God that that life began at some point. And the whole life in between is all designed for the glory of God. There is no variation from that in God's plan. And so for Martha to have assumed that, all right, yes, I know he'll, I'm not in despair like this is the end forever, but it, it is the end for now. And if that was God's plan, 
If, his, if Christ's presence on this occasion was only for the, uh, for the sympathy and encouragement and support he could offer, that would be good enough. And he was well able to help Mary and Martha through this challenge and to get them focused on what God has left for them to do in their lives. And in that way, if you believe, God, I believe you are in control of this circumstance. You allowed my brother to die. And that's okay. Because I believe your plan is better. You see, that determination right there is going to bring glory to God. That very submission to his plan, even when it's hard, that's God's glory at work. And you can do that only by his grace. On this occasion, Christ has something else to show, and that is his power over death. And it's a lesson then that applies to every other circumstance. If you believe, there's what he's after. He's after the response that says, I'm convinced that even in this dire circumstance, Christ is in full control. I might not like how it's worked out, at this moment at least, but I believe He's in control. You are now ready to bring glory to God, whatever God's plan might be in that circumstance. That's overcoming the spiritual effects of sin because it is sin. It's our sinful nature that convinces us that you can't, you can't trust God today. You can't really think he can help in this circumstance. That's a sinful response. Correcting that says, no, no, I believe he's in control. Jesus didn't promise resurrection on this occasion. He doesn't promise everything's going to work out the way you want if you just believe. That's not what he's holding out here. That's a common, uh, uh, unbiblical theme of preaching among some in our world today. If you believe, if you speak in faith that such and such good thing is going to happen that you want, then God will do it for you. (laughs) That's not what Christ is saying. He's saying you believe that God can achieve glory no matter how this circumstance works out. You submit to him. You trust his plan. You believe his word. You no doubt have some obstacles that you're facing that looks like, well, that just seems like that's turning out to be a dead end. A wayward family member, a long-term illness with perhaps no recovery, 
an uncertain future path. That's that phrase that stuck out to me in the, uh, in the song, that in fear and, you, you, and, the, and the future looks uncertain. Well, I guess that line didn't stick with me very well. I just uh, recreated it <laughs> in slightly different words. All of those are instances of opportunity to say, but God, I believe. I believe you are in control. The Lord always arrives on time. He's never too late. And he always meets the need of the moment in his way. As we see in verses 41 to 44, he can release the grip of death. He actually has that power. Who would have thought? Verse 41 So they took away the stone. Martha must have complied. She must have decided to believe. Whatever he's got in mind, I don't know what it is, but I believe him. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now that's peculiar. He's just begun his prayer and he thanks him that he already heard him. Is Christ playing here on the idea that God already knows what you're going to ask for before you ask it? Which, of course, is true. But apparently not. Christ apparently had anticipated this moment and had talked to the Lord about it ahead of time. I mean, it was four days ago when he heard the news that Lazarus had died that he told the disciples he already knew what he was going to do. He says, I go to awaken him. What he's expressing here is his connection to God. And that connection is characterized by regular fellowship, by daily times of prayer. That's amazing. The Son of God actually prayed to his Father. We would wonder, did he need to? But he did. This connection of continual fellowship and communication means that he can say at the very moment of the challenge, I thank you that you heard me. Back when I asked you for your help, for your guidance, for your will on this occasion. Okay, it may have been four days ago. It may have been that morning. But he's already prayed about this. And he thanks God for the confidence that he heard him. And that wasn't an isolated occasion, as he indicates in verse 42. I knew that you always hear me. That's why you can be so confident. But you see, he's voicing this not for his own encouragement. He is addressing God. He's focused there. But John goes on to tell us that he, or he, he tells us himself in the words John records, that he was saying this out loud, knowing that the hushed crowd were listening to every word, so that they would see you can have the same kind of relationship with God that I have. You can talk with him. You don't have to wait until a crisis moment. You could have talked with him this morning 
and said, I don't know what I'm going to be facing today, but would you help me? And then when a crisis comes, you can tell him, I thank you that you heard me earlier today. And that, well, that's what gives me confidence to move forward right now. He's expressing here his devotion to the Lord. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. There it is again. What's the crucial need of the day? Believe him. Believe him. Believe that he's in control. It's verses 43 and 44 that Christ actually demonstrates his power. But John expresses this as a master of conciseness. There's no elaboration. There's no great drama. There's no uh, follow-up that tells us the impact this had on the bystanders. Nothing that tells us how Lazarus felt through the process. It's just what we need to know to believe him. When he had said these things, that is, he concluded his prayer, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Many have noted in the past that it's a good thing he said, Lazarus. Because there is coming a day, in fact, John records that in an earlier chapter, there's coming a day when he's going to pronounce words like this, but he's going to leave off the name Lazarus. And he says, everybody in the tombs is going to come forth. His plan on this occasion was only one person come. So he identifies who that is to be. And you... Let's just imagine a moment, the suspense, right then. Lazarus, come forth. No doubt there was a brief pause because Lazarus had uh, at least some distance. He had the move to get to the entrance. And I like to picture him just getting to the entrance so everybody could see him. And there he stopped because it took some effort. Uh, as John tells us in verse 44, the man who had died came out, but his hands and feet were bound with linen strips. Probably his, his hands bound to his body, so he can't untie himself. And well, the reason they did it is <laughs> so that his limbs would stay together uh, during the decomposition process. And his feet bound together. So the best he could do would be to kind of shuffle a little bit. going to take him a little while, maybe a hop or two along the way. Uh, but he's pretty well impeded. So he stops as soon as he gets to where, what, what Christ did. Actually, Christ's wording here, we have the translation, uh, Lazarus, come out. Uh, literally, what he said is, Lazarus, here, outside. And so Lazarus came outside, and then Christ gives the order. See, nothing anybody else could do to get Lazarus to come forth, but there is something they can do to help Lazarus now. And so now uh, he does what only he can do. 
And then he expects people to do what they can do. Unbind him and let him go. We're using this passage today for a couple of purposes. One, for the conviction to believe he's in control of every circumstance. But the other is also in preparation for the Lord's table today. Because in order for him to demonstrate this power over death, he had to endure death himself. This was a prescript to what he was going to accomplish. He was going to prove he's got the power to raise the dead by dying for the sins of all people. Putting your trust in that Savior obtains forgiveness of sin. Today, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, we urge you that you believe him. That you believe that he died to pay for your sin. That you decide to trust him your Savior, you accept his payment, that you turn from your sin. At the same time, Christ has ordered that we follow the procedure of the Lord's table to remember what it cost him for us to live. So as we do that, let's bow for prayer. I'd urge you to examine your own heart. If Christ is there, ask him to forgive any lingering sin that you might not have confessed yet. If Christ is not there, ask him to be your Savior. Father, we thank you for a Savior who was willing to die that we might live. Thank you that you also raised him from the dead and that today he is in control of every circumstance. Father, would you help us to believe him? Bless, Father, as we proceed to obey your instructions of this particular way to remember what it cost our Savior to provide for our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.